Nuclear heroes. Those who oppose nuclear in all its various forms are a growing group of staunch individuals who dedicate some portion of our lives to turning around the insane push to increase all things nuclear, be it weapons, power reactors, uranium mining, highly radioactive waste, or any of the processes necessary to support and manage them. But few people have had the impact of a tiny nun who in 2012, at the age of 82, joined with two associates and easily broke into the United States' Fort Knox of uranium to stage a peaceful protest against nuclear weapons. As for her reasons for taking an action that resulted in her being imprisoned for two and a half years, Sister Megan Rice explained, Renouncing and denouncing and exposing nuclear weapons or any crime, we're all invited, humanly speaking, we must expose and oppose crimes against humanity. There's only one thing to do, and that is anybody who is available and free to expose and oppose nuclear weapons of mass destruction. She makes it sound so simple and logical that when you hear a call to action like that, from a woman like that, it's possible to think that maybe we can join together to eliminate this seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a look at why we need to get rid of nuclear weapons from a senior citizen nun who literally put her life on the line to stop nukes. Sister Megan Rice, who with two associates broke into the U.S. Fort Knox of uranium at Y-12 using only wire clippers, a Bible, and her will. And once she has inspired you to help end nuclear weapons, you'll hear an upbeat discussion of actions that any one of us can take that cost nothing and can be done from the comfort of our home. That will be in the upbeat discussion about the Don't Bank on the Bomb program from Susie Snyder. Today is Tuesday, December 22, 2023, and here is this week's year-end nuclear hot seat special on why and how to get rid of nuclear weapons. One of my favorite interviews from 11 and a half years of nuclear hot seat was with Sister Megan Rice. She was a Roman Catholic nun who was arrested more than 40 times for protesting America's military-industrial complex. She is best known for breaking into Y-12, one of the world's largest and most highly guarded uranium storage sites. But on July 28, 2012, this diminutive octogenarian nun with two other anti-nuclear activists used simple bolt cutters and their beliefs to walk into Y-12. 
our extremely embarrassed government threw the book at these three activists, charging them with sabotage, a felony with a penalty of up to 20 years in prison. Sister Megan and the others served just over two years before being released. Sister Megan Rice passed away on October 17, 2021, at the age of 91, and there is no better commemoration of her life and her work than her own words. Recorded here for Nuclear Hot Seat on May 25, 2012, just after her release from prison. Sister Megan, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. First of all, did you know that your case was in the process of being reviewed by the Sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals? And were you in any way expecting that the sabotage ruling against you was going to be taken away? I certainly knew it was happening, and I can only say common sense would say that's what would have to happen. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, anything we're always ready for every surprise in this country. And common sense is not necessarily the most common thing we have, so it was great news that was received by people throughout internationally, our community. When you learned of the court's decision, what was your reaction? I wasn't all that excited because I really expected that that would happen. I found out at 3 in the morning, I was listening to the BBC, and it was just a tiny little announcement of, at the end of a six- or seven-minute uh, summary of the world news. And it just said in a statement that, you know, the naming us all are, are given immediate release. Let's take this back to how the action started. This has been credited or at least been mentioned in connection with something called Transform Now Plowshares. Is that a group? Is that a movement? Tell us a bit about what that is. Since about 1980, starting with Father Dan Berrigan, brother Bill Berrigan, started the Plowshares Movement which has done many, many actions, direct actions, to expose the illegality and the immorality that we all know in our hearts of, of nuclear weapons. And so each of the actions, I'm not sure of the number in my head, but it's certainly more than 30, but I don't know, has a special name, just like every battleship has a special name. And... So the last one, which happened on the 2nd of November, 2009, in Kipsap, Bangor, Trident Submarine Base, was called Disarm Now. And it came to me that, okay, what's the next step? You know, part of the process, the main process of disarming is not to deplete the planet and stop end all the jobs for people but to transform the whole thing into what we need. So the word transformation just came. So uh, the next step after disarming, or really part of it, is transform now into life-enhancing alternatives. How was the determination made that you would target the Y-12 uranium depository at Oak Ridge? That was the research that we were doing, mainly at that point, Greg and I, we were moving from community to community. He 
lived in Duluth, and so we went east. We had to go east anyway, and we stopped in Kansas City, which was the place where they were making all the non-nuclear parts to nuclear weapons, uh, for other words, continuing the proliferation of nuclear weapons. They were willing to do something for August 2012, so we didn't need to do anything there. Then we moved on eastward and consulted with the peace movements all along the way in communities that were there. We got up to Maine even, to Bangor, I mean to um, near Portland, you know, Bath. And uh, that was another submarine carrier manufacturing place. And then we moved down and we realized that the one that hadn't had a good direct action was Oak Ridge. We wanted to have something for... 2012, August 6th and August 9th, you know, something around that time to remember 68 years ago. You, Michael, and Greg took several symbolic actions on the site. How did you determine what those actions were and what they would symbolize? It was very easy. I mean, these are the same symbols that have been used and we've meditated on them and understood them. I started being connected with Jonah House after my mother died, in, and I was there in 1999 and 2000 when a, an action was going on. So I was there to reflect and pray with that community and be instructed by Phil Berrigan and Liz and the people living there I understood fully, and the same way with Greg, he was living there. We understood the importance of those symbols of exterminating uh, sacred life. So the sacred symbol of life certainly is blood. And to show that to the workers without having to say anything was very educative. And renouncing and denouncing and exposing nuclear weapons or any crime were all invited, humanly speaking, we must expose and oppose crimes against humanity. How supportive was your order as you were making these plans and going into this action? When I came back from Africa, I asked where I felt I could, you know, work best in this country. And I had been to the nuclear test site in Nevada 20 years before. This is 2003 and four now really mainly 2004, and I realized that they needed somebody in Nevada, so I was allowed to do community work there and help out with that peace movement for the next six, seven years. But I was then realizing that was nuclear testing and the action at Kipsack Bangor in the state of Washington had made me see, was two years later, that nothing really had happened so we were ready to, to make another message. And so I asked to be able to focus just on nuclear weapons for a year. And they were very, very supportive of that. And I, I didn't have to say what I was doing. We are an order with whose charism or whose mission is to meet the wants of the age. And we have been studying what are the wants of the age since we began encouraged by our founders, Cornelia Connolly, in 1846. So we've been constantly searching to meet the wants of the age. And 
I could see that this couldn't be a more important want of the age to meet, to try to meet. Let's take this into the action itself. At the point that you were dropped off and you were facing that chain link fence as you were about to go in, what were your thoughts? What were your feelings? Were you scared? Was this a profound moment? Did you pray beforehand? How did this get started? We had like an eight-day retreat before that in the area of Knoxville with the people who were very happy to be part of this designing and shaping of what would happen. And just the wonderful grace of energy uh, in our shared prayer through the eight days. And we had known from satellite, whatever, I didn't have to worry about that, exactly what and where. And so we were dropped off, not in front of the chain link fence, but before the woods, you know, we were able to mount the ridge, which is Oak Ridge, in the dark. And we just followed and we just walked through, no path or anything. We just headed to the top, winding our way. And uh, obviously we were led. And then we finally, after about two hours going up, we reached in. I was, wasn't even thinking about being afraid because we were getting through and nobody was stopping us. And um, we could look down on this. It was probably 4.30, so before dawn. And we just were able to move right on down. And we were inside the three, well, first the outer fence was still in the woods. That didn't take any time. And we closed it up, you know, with little plastic ties. Very short um, right angle, two sides of a triangle, so that we could slip through with a flap. And uh, we were all rather thin people, and it was very easy. And then we got to the top of the ridge and looked over, and then we just kept on going. We saw a that security car just drove by. We saw it drive back, and then we just started and got to the first of the last three fences. Couldn't have been five minutes to get through one. Nothing was electrocuting us. We just moved on and got through three and we were there by quarter to five, and I had looked, last time I looked at my watch, it was quarter to five. And we did exactly what we knew we were going to do, totally unheated, unimpeded. And uh, it took maybe ten minutes, maybe, you know, you didn't look at your clock, but not long at all. And then we had finished the three or four things we planned to do quietly, not having any, uh, just we were all very focused. And then this way down at the opposite end of the building, which is very long, this van that had been driving around the roadway before drove right next to the building, probably 25, 30 feet inside the last fence, I guess. I don't really remember. I mean, I couldn't measure exactly. And anyway, it drove very slowly up to us, and we were ready to meet it. And we bowing before them. It was just that one man. Kirk Garland, and we read. He was willing to listen to our. We just were ready to read to him why we were there, and that is available. And I hope people know that we wrote that during the retreat, in the eight days before. Given a link to it, I will definitely post it up on the website in connection with this episode, so that people can actually read what oh, he yeah. said. The two things that we brought in were the statement. 
And then the second one was the indictment, a list of what laws were being infringed by continuing the manufacture, testing, use, and storage of nuclear weapons. So it sounds like rather than what has been reported that you were there for two hours before a guard showed up, that it was really a relatively short period of time. That was it's always, uh, yeah, I find that it's just a mistake. We landed on the downside of the ridge probably, I think it was by 2 or 2.30. So we, we were looking at it by 4.30. Okay, so it could be like two hours to get up the hill. But the actual action itself, it sounds like it took maybe 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, I, at certainly 20 at the outset, at the most. Anybody could have done it in that little time. How did the guard respond when he suddenly came upon the three of you on this site? Yeah, well, it wasn't all that sudden. It was slow. He responded just by looking at us. We could hear him saying on the phone, his cell phone, they're peace protesters. You better send somebody along, something like that. He was very, he had known that we were peace. It was most obvious that we were peace protesters. And um, he, he had had that experience. He had been at Rocky Flats for many years and then somewhere else. And, you know, you can always tell when they're peace protesters. How were you treated by the authorities when they did show up? I felt that they were, I mean, there was this, the second person was nervous and had his gun and this and that, but it was very gently. We were handcuffed and told to sit on the ground, and which we did. You know, this is now 5.15, 5.30. took a little while for the more vans to come. And we were on the ground with our hands cuffed at the back, with our ankles cuffed from then on. You know, we watched the sun come up. People gradually, you know, like undressed, because it was Saturday morning. Those that were higher up in the line of the marshals uh, spoke very politely to us. You don't, you, do you want to answer some questions? You don't have to without your lawyer kind of thing. And then we sat there. You know, it wasn't until maybe 10 o'clock they brought three collapsible chairs, but we would stand up, you know, just because it was stiff and all that, and they had to help me get up. You know, you'd stand maybe every 20 minutes for five minutes or something like that. It took them all that time to get their act together, in other words. You were initially charged with misdemeanor trespass. And then suddenly the charges were up to damaging a defense facility under the Sabotage Act, which carries a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. And there was also the charge of causing more than $1,000 damage to government property, which carries up to 10 years in prison. Why do you think the charges against you were so dramatically increased in their severity? Obviously, they didn't want a trial. They thought we would try to get out easily with a plea bargain. Oh, was that the strategy? Uh, oh, absolutely. They always want plea bargains. Was there any question in your mind about taking the plea bargain? No question. Along? At, no possibility of a question. And what did you hope to accomplish with the trial and the resulting disability? To doing what? 
we had to do. It's the obligation of every, we're all equally responsible to expose and oppose known crimes. So there was nothing else we could do but do it in order to make a very clear message quickly. I know you take your ministry with you wherever you go, and you ended up spending over two years in prison. What was it like for you in there, and what sort of work were you able to do or were you moved to do with the women who you met there? I would say I was more minister to than ministering. Ministry, we believe, is totally shared. It's a giving and a sharing and a receiving, and none of those can be exaggerated in order to be harmoniously accomplished. And it happened to me. I received as much as I shared, as much as I gave. We always say in West Africa, go by opposites when you're in the reality of the thing. Nobody could imagine what the reality is until we experience it. And I have been overawed by amazingly strong and gifted women and um uh, some compassionate men, there were not many for me to interact with, but some were very respectful and uh, interacting that way. But, of course, we, I was fellow inmates. And I also had a lot of time to interact with the world because I did try to respond in some way to everybody who has written, either by a joint letter, because people need to be honored. I mean, everybody is involved in this, and Equally, whether they're writing letters, whether they're sitting at home with their arthritis, or whether they're just, you know, sending the energy through prayer to harmonize and heal the world. And it's just part of that grand scheme of of healing the planet of its wounds and being healed, of course. In this time between your release and the fact that you're going to still have to go back to court for resentencing sometime this summer on the one remaining charge. What are your plans for this period of time before you find out finally whether they are going to put you back in jail or whether they're just going to declare time served and let you go? I haven't had time to do any planning. My time has been taken up and programmed by something ever since we were released last Saturday evening at 6 o'clock. So I just followed the, what was the next call, for, you know, the next day, what, what had emerged. I had a remote plan. I knew that I could, you know, get a medical checkup immediately and then some recommendations in the same building to see whatever I needed, slight checkups, which were very, very minor and everything is very mild, and I don't have anything to worry about. You know, it's just very practical things. So I'm just staying nearby and, and doing accomplishing those things and trying to respond to telephone calls from people like you. We haven't even had a chance to talk to each other, Mike and Greg, you know, because Greg was in transit, and, and there just hasn't been time for me to dial them and nor them to dial me. Were you in contact at all during the time that you were imprisoned? Not really, really. We were meant to be, but Greg got his paperwork done coming from Leavenworth, but each of the places where I was, 
just didn't respond to it. I definitely had we had a right to be in touch with each other, but we couldn't. They never came and told me it's okay to do it. In your mind, where would you like your action to lead? What do you want to happen now? And given that the listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat are international, we have 38 countries that listen to this show on a monthly basis, Mm. what can we do to support you in where you want this to go next? I don't think that I'm seeking support for me. There's only one thing to do, and that is anybody who is available and free and carrying on with what they're all doing to expose and oppose nuclear weapons of mass destruction. And and I see that people have each has their own gifts of creativity, their own style of doing it, and I totally honor, I'm going to say you, and I'm speaking to all the people that you're in network with, and thank you, and just carry on and continue to see how we can make this message you know, more, you know, and just react to the uh, denial of the Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference, uh, you know, the review that just ended on Friday, and let's support uh, the ray of hope there, the, the countries that are just getting out of that thing because they failed. New York Times doesn't even mention what was happening at the U.N. for the last month. So we all need to Get in touch with the people who are involved in these international treaties and what can we do? How can we speak out? Because we are the majority. We're not the minority. Sister Megan Rice, you are one of my heroes. I am honored to be speaking with you. I support you, and if there's anything I can do to help you in the future, please do not hesitate to let me know. You're doing it, dearie. You're on it. So we, this is a mutually assured um, admiration society. Should we say that? Thank you so much for that. Sister Megan Rice, you are a hero to so many of us, and I am deeply honored that we have been able to spend this time together on Nuclear Hot Seat. Bless you, dearie, and uh, divert to the what you're doing. You're doing a great job, and thank you. Her words meant a great deal to me. That was Sister Megan Rice, a Roman Catholic nun who was arrested more than 40 times for protesting America's military-industrial complex, most specifically for breaking into one of the world's largest and purportedly most highly guarded uranium storage sites. Sister Megan passed away on October 17, 2021, at the age of 91, but her spirit and her message lives on. We'll have this week's second featured interview in just a moment, but first, as we come to the end of the year, we understand that gifts come in all forms. My weekly gift to you is Nuclear Hot Seat, a program to bring you up to date on nuclear issues around the world from that all-important, different perspective to allow you to hear the facts from those on the ground pushing back against the nuclear juggernaut in their own backyard and the nuclear Ponzi scheme that threatens all of us, up to all of life on Earth. Guests this year alone have included activists, attorneys, medical doctors, epidemiologists, engineers, downwinders, authors, filmmakers, and many others. Anyone of interest I could find 
who is fighting against some aspect of the nuclear-industrial complex. It's my honor and privilege to be able to talk with people such as these, ask them all the questions I can, many of them inspired by questions sent in by you, and then share the answers with anyone, meaning all of you, who care to listen, literally around the world. But producing the show takes more than just my time and energy. It requires money to support the many digital services that go into the making and disseminating of the show. That's what I'm reaching out to you about now. Yes, the D word. Donation. Nuclear Hot Seat is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization, so anything you donate will be tax-deductible. You can support us by going to the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, clicking on the red Donate button, and follow the prompts. You can send us a one-time donation or set up a recurring donation of as little as $5, the equivalent of a cup of coffee here in the U.S. Or you can send money directly on Zelle to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Whatever you can do to help, know that I am deeply grateful for your support and for the opportunity to continue to serve you with nuclear news from a different perspective. Now, here's this week's second featured interview. Susie Snyder is the Financial Sector Coordinator at the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, the people behind the push to get the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons enforced around the world, including the nine nuclear weapons states. Before that, for more than a decade, Susie coordinated the Don't Bank on the Bomb project, which was her position when we spoke on May 10, 2019. Her information is as relevant now as it was then, and know that the report on nuclear bomb-producing companies that she references is updated every year with the most current information available. So whatever year you hear her saying, just substitute this one. Note that there will be a brief, unplanned appearance of a young activist who underscores the reason why we do this work. Susie Snyder, thank you so much for being with us here today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Great to be here. Thanks so much. First of all, what is PACS and what are the organization's goals? Well, PAX is a Dutch peace organization, and what we're doing, we are working to reduce uh, human suffering as a result of conflict. Um, and so to, to prevent war, prevent suffering, uh, and generally to, to make sure that we build norms that keep people safe and keep people alive. What are some of your cornerstone programs. I'm certainly familiar with Don't Bank on the Bomb because I've followed that protocol with my own finances. What is this and how can people participate in it? Don't Bank on the Bomb is a great project um, that is, what we do is we, we do three things. We examine the impact of the financial sector on companies that produce nuclear weapons. We name those companies, name them and shame them, and we encourage people to get in touch with their financial institutions so that they develop policies so that they don't have any exposure to these companies that do produce the key components for nuclear bombs. So it's, it's naming the ones that have investments, it's supporting the ones that have great policies not to invest, and it's, of course, identifying the companies that make the bombs, because if we don't know who's doing it, we don't know what we can do about it. Speaking of those companies, there has just been a new report that came out 
naming 28 separate companies as being involved in the manufacture of nuclear weapons. How did that report come about and what are some of the findings you've made because of it? Well, let me tell you, Libby, it was a good deal of research and we are extremely rigorous in our research. So we've been looking at contracts and announcements for contracts, requests for proposals and so on for the last, uh, for the last six months. Um, and so what we did is as we looked at these, we looked at these different issues and we, sorry, sorry, I, I'm no. sure that many of your listeners also have children. <laughs> and it's so the, they're hearing in the background. <laughs> Susie, this is the reason we do the work that we do for the children and beyond. So this could not be more perfect. <laughs> it is just the reality, you know, working moms everywhere. Um, anyway, so what we did is um, we looked at the contracts, we looked at the, the government plans, different government plans for new types of nuclear weapons, for the weapons that are under these so-called modernization program. And then we looked to see, okay, who's actually doing this in-house, so to speak? Like what, what countries are doing it? There's only nine countries that have nuclear weapons, right? It's not so many at the end of the day. And we look at who does stuff in-house using state-run agencies and who contracts out. Now, not everybody contracts out. Russia does stuff mostly in-house. Uh, North Korea does everything in-house. Pakistan does stuff in-house. But India, um, the US, the UK, France, they all, con they all hire external contractors. So then we follow the money. Who bids on the contracts? Who gets the contract? And what are they doing? What are they actually doing under these contracts? And that's what we found exciting. Well, it's exciting in, a, in not a nice way, <laughs> to be honest. But we found that, you know, we found over $116 billion in existing contracts right now for keeping nuclear weapons on the planet. And some of them until 2075, which all of these countries have said, the heads of state at one time or another said, no, we need a world without nuclear weapons. And I'll tell you, you don't get to a world without nuclear weapons by hiring Boeing or Raytheon or Lockheed Martin to build a new nuclear arsenal for you. Some of the stories that I've read about coming out from the contracts are truly, it's like going into bizarro land. Uh, give us some examples. For example, when the head of Raytheon was asked if there was a growth opportunity in the U.S. exit from the INF Treaty. So this was really surprising. I mean, okay, usually with nuclear weapons, nobody's really, at least nobody should be really proud to be making nuclear weapons. These are weapons designed to, you know, your listeners will know this already. These are weapons designed to annihilate cities. They're not for battlefields. They're not for strategic pinpoint accuracy. This is a city buster. And that's, I think that's really important to keep in mind. And for the most part, over the last, almost the last generation, people have been shying away from, from taking pride in this, but then there are a few. Um, and there's been a slight change in the rhetoric around this. So when, you know, Donald Trump took office, he asked these questions, why would we have nuclear weapons if we could never use them? And he started saying, well, maybe we need, you know, we need to go back to make more and the biggest and the best weapons. Um, and he's basically inciting an arms race by withdrawing from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, this treaty from 1987 that prohibited an entire class of weapons. He opened the floodgates on this. 
And so in Raytheon, and Raytheon of all companies, Raytheon kind of was getting out of the nuclear arms game. It was seen as a, as a losing interest. But then the withdrawal from the INF came about and they said, oh, wait, we might have an opportunity here, at least in the short term. So you, you saw the investor relations call. They said they were asked the question, oh, yeah, you know, is there any opportunity for us? And over the next quarter, Raytheon got 500 million in new contracts related to missile technology. Um, so Raytheon's starting to cash in on this new nuclear arms race. And I just have to ask the question, what are they, you know, they're only looking for short-term game. What are they looking for in the long-term? Because this is not the kind of product that we should be supporting. It's a terrifying thought that nuclear weapons are looked at as a growth industry and an opportunity for investor profits when really their end game is the destruction of everything and their profits will mean nothing. There are other programs that have been brought up in the reading that I've been doing. And another one had to do with Boeing and a new program that the company that brought us the twice crashed 737 MAX is being asked to develop. What is a flight termination receiver and what are the implications of the attempt to develop it? Okay, so this is something that within the nuclear policy community, there's some debate, right? So the flight termination receiver is, the idea is you, you can call the missile back because it takes about, it takes between 25 and 40 minutes for an intercontinental ballistic missile to be launched and hit its target. And that means that once you press the button, there's, there's two hours until the end of civilization as we know it, because any target, they're gonna, they're gonna see the incoming missile and they're gonna launch in return. They're going to try to take everything out before you take out what they've got. That's the whole, that's, there was this whole concept behind mutually assured destruction. So with what Boeing is doing now is they're making this new missile technology so that if you launch and you decide, oh, wait, whoops, our, our information was wrong. Oh, actually, it was a weather balloon. Oh, no, that wasn't an incoming missile. It was, you know, it was a pigeon. You know, whatever it is, and I, I don't mean to make light of it, but seriously, what, there's been so many near misses. It could be anything. The idea is that the missile would then go off course or would, or would self-destruct. So it wouldn't have the same, um, it wouldn't hit its target. So the idea is to be able to, to shift it in flight. Now, on the one hand, you know, this could be great because then it, you know, it won't hit its target and you could, you could stop some insanity. But on the other hand, if you see the missile coming in, you're going to fire with everything you've got. And so it's a losing situation. It's a losing proposition. And honestly, as you said, Libby, I mean, how much can we trust Boeing right now? It's how much do we trust anybody who is working in nuclear arms because they can somehow justify it. I've also seen that one of the problems with having a flight termination receiver is that it might call for a launch of a weapon and then using it just as a scare tactic because they think, well, we can pull it back and there will be no harm, no foul, when indeed, you're right, the retaliation could be volleyed out before we could pull it back and they might not be able to do so and there goes the planet, or if not the planet, at least the people and the life forms on it. Exactly, and what we've learned from new climate research, from new modeling over the, just the last 10 years is that it doesn't take a thousand bombs going off to destroy the civilization that we, that we know. It would take a hundred weapons 
between, for example, India and Pakistan and two billion people, two billion people would be at risk of famine. It would cause grave environmental catastrophe. It would, it would be a nuclear winter. And in the 80s, we were totally aware of this. We're like, okay, this is not gonna happen. We're gonna stop it. We're gonna shut this down. This is insane. And right now, it's our time to stand up and say, hey, this is insane. There are so many more things that we could spend the money on. The US government alone is spending $70,000 a minute on producing nuclear weapons, 70,000 a minute. Imagine what $70,000 a minute could do for public education, addressing climate change. The nuclear weapons problem, it's complicated, but it's, it's a relatively easy fix. And it's just a matter of deciding to do it. And now's the time for people to, to demand that we do. You know, you're right. On the one hand, it's a terribly depressing image for those of us who oppose nuclear and have managed to become conscious about it. Yet, in the intertwining of the private sector and nuclear weapons, there are potential points of leverage. Explain what you mean by that. This is what's, what I'm finding is very exciting. So two years ago, most of the, the nations in the world adopted a new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. They said, you know what? This has gone bonkers long enough, and the consequences of any use of nuclear weapons are so grave, we need to prohibit everything to do with them. Prohibit all the making, having, using, preparing to use, pro prohibit it. Make it illegal. Make sure that we are collectively responsible if any weapons get used you know, reinforce the non-proliferation standard by doing so. Protect the environment. This is so most governments in the world said, yes, we're gonna do this. And after that, financial institutions, banks, pension funds, insurance companies, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the weapons are illegal, the companies that are making the weapons, they're gonna start to go down. Let's get out, let's get out now. Let's prevent any reputational risk or regulatory risk. Let's end our financial involvement with these companies. And 10% of them dropped out. It was amazing. When you said 10% of them dropped out, explain a little more about what that exactly means. We've been doing this kind of analysis of the involvement of the financial sector and nuclear weapon producers for, for a while now, since 2013. And we track every year how many, how many banks and how many financial institutions invest. And from the adoption of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons until a year later, there was a 10% reduction. There's, it's, in actual numbers, there's 30 fewer financial institutions that had investments in the companies that produce nuclear weapons. And some of these are, are really, like, this is Blue Cross and Blue Shield that previously had some investments and then got out. This is, you know, the Norwegian government pension funds that said, oh, wait a minute, we, we better change our relationship here. This is ABP, which is the fifth largest pension fund in the world. And they said, oh, hang on. Nope, nuclear is illegal now. Got to get out of that game, which is quite impressive. And we're putting together the numbers for this year. And I think we're going to see some, some additional positive change. There's Nope. Even though a few companies are starting to make money off of new contracts, 
In most of the world, this is seen as a bad investment. I often think of PACS and the Nobel Peace Prize winning international campaign for the abolition of nuclear weapons, or ICANN, which was behind the treaty in the United Nations, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I often think of you two as kind of either conjoined or somehow being under the same umbrella. What is the relationship between the two groups? PACS is a partner of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And ICANN is a campaign coalition, and we've got over 500 partners in more than 100 countries around the world. And it was ICANN working with these partnerships, also with with concerned governments, with international organizations like the the Global Red Cross that got this treaty to happen. It was was through partnership. It was through a movement. And PAX is is a part of this bigger movement. We're really proud to be a member of this campaign coalition because it means that we're As we said in the the local papers here, the Nobel Peace Prize got won in our little town, at least a little bit. It's quite amazing. Let's switch over to talking a little bit about ICANN and the impact that that is having and can potentially have on the entire nuclear weapons landscape in the world. It is not a campaign to ask the nine nuclear countries to get rid of their weapons. It's a campaign to get all of the countries that don't have nuclear weapons to agree to not get nuclear weapons. And then there are other provisions involved with it as well. Can you explain what those are and how those would mess up the nuclear countries? Sure. So the thing is with with ICANN is that we're working in over 100 countries to raise the stigma against nuclear weapons. And most countries of the world have already rejected nuclear weapons. It's just this nine that are seem to be a bit stuck and seem to be kind of a, I don't know, it's a little bit of old thinking and that doesn't quite relate to the current world order. But the ICANN is working even in the nuclear armed countries to say, hey, we have a plan to get to no nuclear weapons in the world. We know the nuclear armed countries, they're clearly not ready yet. They haven't quite matured to the level of, of many others to be able to, to take a more realistic and pragmatic approach to their security. But the other countries have. And so countries like Austria and Ireland, South Africa, are fully on board with this treaty because they recognize that there is no, no benefit to them and only risk from supporting nuclear weapons. What this means is that financial institutions in those countries have seen what happens with other weapons prohibitions and they get out of the, of the game when it comes to, to investing in companies that produce the weapons. Companies like Airbus, Airbus is a, com- is a Dutch registered company. Airbus has operations throughout Europe. Airbus is known for making airplanes. Airbus also makes missiles for the French nuclear arsenal. And what this does is it says that if, if Airbus, for example, when Germany signs on to the ban treaty, the operations that Airbus has within Germany can't be involved in the production of missiles for France or for anybody else, because that's prohibited under the treaty. And that would change the landscape for France. France doesn't have a, another capability or that they have to move manufacturing capabilities. And that's, that's really important. And also, the treaty also has this great impact because it makes the question of, it challenges the assumption that nuclear weapons benefit anyone's security. 
and in fact puts the onus on those who have the weapons to prove it. You've been saying this for so long with no evidence. You've been you know, quite hysterical about your security concerns. No, be rational, be calm, prove that this is the only way forward. And if it is in fact the only way forward, why are you so united against other countries getting the same weapons? Why does North Korea use the same language as France in defending its, its decision to get nuclear weapons? You know, be a calm, rational actor in this field and not the hysterical nuclear-armed countries that we've come to know. It seems that this program, the Treaty for the Prevention of Nuclear War, and the countries that sign on to it would really signify a grassroots erosion of the ability of the nuclear industry to operate unimpeded. In other words, putting perhaps, if not a block in the road, a stone in the shoe, that they can't move forward as they planned on it. And here in the U.S., we are starting to see some changes, at least on the state and the local level. In January, a bill was introduced in the Massachusetts state legislature that would require the state's pension funds to divest from nuclear manufacturers. The city of Cambridge has already done so, and here in California, Ojai will not make any future investments in the makers or funders of nuclear weapons. Do you think that the best way for us to proceed is to work on the local grassroots level rather than going for the big guys in Washington, D.C. or the heads of whatever countries, people listening to this show in 123 countries that listen to it, um, not going after the top of the governmental food chain, but starting local is the path we need to follow? Well, I think it depends on where people are. So in the U.S., you know, one out of every eight Americans lives in California. So when the California state legislature passes a resolution calling on the U.S. federal government to endorse and embrace the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, that is significant. And that is a demonstration of the will of the people. Nuclear weapons are the opposite of democracy. They are the opposite of people's movements. And it's going to take people's movements being creative in the locations they are to get change. We just had today, which said Berlin, both the city of Berlin as well as the federal state of Berlin come on board and call on the German government to join this treaty. Oh, that's fabulous. I hadn't gotten that news yet. Yeah, and, and it's happening every day. There are new cities joining. There are new, there's new state resolutions being discussed. There are conversations happening. And the key thing is, nuclear weapons are an anachronism, and we can move past them, but we have to talk about them. And we have to talk about them not just with our friends that it's comfortable to talk about them with, but to talk about them in other places and reach out because I'll tell you, we ran a petition campaign a couple of years ago in the Netherlands. And what we found is that nine out of every 10 people we asked said, of course we don't support nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are dumb. Wait, they're still a problem? I thought they were gone. Most people don't know. And as soon as they know, they think, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. This is a problem of the 80s. Let's, let's send it to the dustbin of history. That attitude and that emphasis and that enthusiasm is starting to catch like a wildfire throughout the world. And it will change the minds of those sitting in the high political offices. If you are friends with the head of state, by all means, call your buddy, 
and tells him to get on board with this treaty. If, however, you are not friends with the head of state, think about other ways you can, you can help support this, this effort to make nuclear weapons history. That brings us to the practicalities. What are things that people on the ground can do and what tools do you have? Because the research is extensive and it is impeccable. Everything is footnoted. Everything is accurate in it because we can't, our side can't afford to make mistakes. What do you have available that we can use to support anything that we are saying or doing on the ground? Well, the first thing I would encourage your listeners to just sign up to our newsletter. We're constantly putting information out. It's at nuclearban.org. And there's tons of info there. Well, now, it depends, again, where people are. If you want to figure out how to make sure your personal finances are in no way connected to the companies that produce nuclear weapons, whether it be through your bank or through your pension investment or other things, um, we have checklists on our website for people to use. We just you know, quickly make, scan the website, see if your bank's listed, send them a message. We have tools you can directly send your bank a message. And a lot of people these days, myself included, use, um, do banking on our phones, right? Mobile banking is, is like the thing. And I encourage people all the time, pull out your phone, go to your banking app and just send a message directly to your bank right now and just say, hey, are we in any way connected to companies that produce nuclear bombs? When you ask that question through your mobile app, through walking into your local bank branch, whatever it is, you're starting a chain reaction of the good kind. The person on the other end probably has no idea. So they're gonna have to ask somebody, is gonna have to ask somebody, is gonna have to ask somebody. We saw a number of financial institutions get out of the, this type of investment because people started asking questions on their Facebook profiles. And there's this like, oh, that's not good. We can't have this. Oh, wait, wait, let's check. Let's check. <gasps> okay, well, let's get that. They, they divested first, and then they put into place a policy to make sure that they'll never have any kind of investments and in, connected to nuclear weapon producers in the future. And it's part of their internal due diligence now. It wasn't a huge number of people that did this. It was three or four people that saw something in the newspaper, that saw a tweet, that heard something on the radio. And they took action because it truly is, as Margaret Mead said, it truly is a small handful of thoughtful and committed people that can change the world. And there are many people who would love the extra energy and attention and the quick question, do we have anything to do with the nuclear bomb? If so, how can we avoid it? And we can, and we will. The brilliance of this program is that any individual can make an enormous difference simply by taking a few steps that are already brilliantly strategized and plotted out and framed as you have done, as the people with PACs have done, and I can as well. If you have any final thoughts to share with the listeners today, what would that be? I would ask your listeners to tell a friend. Each one can reach one and each one can teach one. And that is how we will get this change. And that is how we will be able to retire from working on nuclear weapon issues and put our energy into dealing with the new challenges that face a new century. Susie Snyder, you have been doing brilliant work 
I've been aware of your work since Helen Caldicott's conference. I believe it was five or six years ago. And the progress has been astonishing and breathtaking. I always report on any positive steps that we find out that have been taken by either PACS or ICANN on nuclear hot seat, because we've got to get our new good news from somewhere. And it seems to come inordinately from these two groups. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. It's always a great pleasure. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity today. And I appreciate you being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. I love this woman's energy. Susie Snyder. When we spoke in 2019, she was still coordinator of the Don't Bank on the Bomb project. She's now financial sector coordinator at the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. On our website, we will have a link up to Don't Bank on the Bomb and the most current report. That will be NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 601. And if you run across any information on a company that's making parts for nuclear weapons and it's not on their list, do let them know and they will do the research necessary to find out current information and add it to their report for next year. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 27, 2022. In the new year, don't miss out on a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow opt-in box, put in your first name and your email address, and every week you will get just one email with a link to the show and a brief description of some of the material that is in it. Or if you're on a particular podcast platform you like, look for us there and sign up. That way... You won't run the risk of missing a single episode. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help, and we now have nonprofit status, so whatever you can do will be tax deductible. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program and the website. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, wishing you a safe and healthy 2024, and reminding you that we are one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. So whatever you can do to stop it from happening, do it. Now. And I'll join you. That's it, your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep whatever you do, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.